Oh boy, it is Christmas time, it is Hanukkah time. And as I look at the paper, I see a rabbi who's on there letting a menorah and it's not Rabbi Durbin. What's going not on me. here, man? What, 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 what's the story here? We, here we are in Southeast Florida, you are a rabbi and the paper chose some dude out in St. Lucie County? Mm. Man, well, uh, you know, apparently the, the paper around here is just not woke. Just not woke. They're not awakened to the rabbi that's underneath their nose. So they went too far. Uh, horrible. Uh, that is a horrible tie into our show today, uh, which is about uh, the woke culture. Uh, rabbi Durbin and I will both admit that we are a little bit behind on this. Uh, what that means is something the kids say. <laughs> but it's actually, you know, as you all know, our listeners, that's a, it's a real deal thing. Uh, what does it mean to be woke, be part of the woke culture? Uh, we have a guest today. Um, who, uh, Dr. Riley, Wilford Riley, and you can find him all over social media, but African-American professor out of uh, Kentucky State University who is, uh, really thinks that it is actually detrimental um, and that it's not helpful and that uh, it is a misinterpretation. Well, A, that it's performative um, and, and B, that it doesn't really help move things forward, that it misinterprets uh, opportunities for all Americans and wants to tear down as opposed to looking at the opportunities and having people take responsibility to build up. So uh, this will be uh, an interesting and a good take. He is an author and uh, Rabbi, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. We found him in USA Today, because believe it or not, you and I read. We read because we're woke. We've been, yes, we've been awakened. So, well, brother, um, I know we got to get the show going because you got Hanukkah stuff. You have three hours of classes to teach. You have all these different festivals going on over there. I'm about to go to Advent 4. And as you all know, our, uh, our Anglican moment before we go in is uh, that St. Nicholas was a Russian bishop who offered apples and books two little children way back in the day. Amazing so, how that has changed and morphed over time. Yes, but I don't wanna ruin that for anyone because I don't wanna mess with anyone's fantastical beliefs. So I'm just gonna leave that out there. Saint Nicholas from Russia was a bishop. Okay, let's get ready to roll. Are you ready to do this? Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I've been born ready, I've been born ready. Man, listeners. All right, you guys subscribe to the podcast, please. If you know anyone who really likes to hear about a rabbi and a priest talk about current and relevant issues, especially dealing with hot topics like being woke and racial inequalities and why, how we were able to convince the voice of the New York Mets to be our producer, you want to subscribe and share this with everyone that you know. Please do that and leave a comment. We're going to see you right now on the show. Stay tuned for another episode of A Priest and Rabbi. A priest, a rabbi, a priest, a rabbi, a priest, a rabbi. The opinions you hear from on this show do not represent WSTU, since they probably regretted over allowing the show on the air in the first place. Nor do they represent Temple Bay Hayam or St. Mary's Episcopal Church, since they also wonder what the heck they did when they called these two men to lead their respective congregations. On that note, sit back, relax, Grab your Bible or a Torah and enjoy another episode 
of a priest and a rabbi. Good morning, everybody out there on Stewart, Florida, out there in the world, actually all the way out in Yemen. Out in Yemen, we are really big. I think in France, we are big. But here in Stewart, Florida, no one knows who we are. Uh, this is a priest and a rabbi. Next to me is the best darn look, good looking rabbi you've seen this side of the Jordan River. It is Matthew Durbin. My name is Father Christian Anderson of St. Mary's Episcopal Church here in Stewart, Florida. Uh, together, uh, we make the best Jew and Gentile uh, you, you, you've seen since Paul and Peter. Um, anyway, so today uh, is, is first, we're gonna get into the woke culture today and, and the, maybe the detriment of the woke culture and the really parse it out, we have an excellent guest. But before I get into that, it, it is a big time right now. If you are Jewish, you are in the beginning of Hanukkah. How are you doing over there, Rabbi Durbin? You know, it's, uh, we're doing really well. You know, um, obviously Hanukkah came in last night. Uh, we, we will celebrate for the next uh, eight days. Uh, we've got a ton, a ton of programs and a great activities happening all throughout the weekend uh, here at the temple, both virtually and, uh, and, and for those who feel comfortable to join us at the temple. You know, in the past we've done, um, we have in our sanctuary, the well of our sanctuary, we put up tables and everyone brings their, Hanukkah menorah and we 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 put in the candles and we light them and it's just the light and the just the atmosphere and just the glow of these candles that we've always done in our sanctuary and of course with covid and restrictions and the safety of our community you know we're doing it outside tonight hopefully the weather will be conducive but to to be able to do that and to share the the joy of the holiday we're gonna do that tonight we have you know three hours of learning opportunities with a variety of different rabbis and cantors and educators and um uh, tomorrow morning three for, hours yeah 9 30 12 30 tomorrow about 14 different sessions going on um simultaneously uh between those three hour blocks tomorrow and then we got a we have a a a jewish bluegrass uh concert uh tomorrow night at eight o'clock and on sunday we have uh uh one of our uh beloved characters from frozen elsa will be joining us for to engage our young kids on sunday morning and then we have Lockerfest, um, socially distanced Lockerfest outside at 11 o'clock, followed by in the afternoon, a great program through the Federation, um, a virtual kind of tour as we light our Hanukkah down in West Palm. So, I mean, there's a ton of stuff going on, but yeah, it's been, I'm excited. I'm excited. Well, it's been a good yeah. Uh, thanks for the invite, by the way. That was great. Um, I think well, I figured, uh, I figured 11 o'clock may be a little difficult for you guys um, in the, in the, in the church world. On Sunday? Yeah, but if you know if, if I get a personal invite from a rabbi telling me to come to three hours of class, um, that might be tough to make. But uh, hey, so anyone out there, if you guys are interested, you want to learn more, you're like, you know what, I don't know anything about Hanukkah. You have this wonderful, friendly, lovely rabbi who would love to invite you in. Don't worry, he's not mean. He's just only mean to me. Uh, I, rabbi Durbin, I got to ask you a question though. I look on the cover of Stuart News and I hear I see this guy, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Umanir. Is he a hack or what? Is this guy the real deal? I mean, he's a, he's the Chabad rabbi of, of both, uh, 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 you know, Martin and St. Lucie County. Um, Stuart News, will you put Rabbi Durbin on the cover? This is Stuart, Florida. Okay, we're looking at this right now. We have a guest in from Kentucky. This is embarrassing. Come on. But let, let's put our rabbi on the cover. Nothing against Rabbi Shlomo, uh, but... Uh, 
we, we, we love Rabbi Durbin here at WSTU and uh, Priest and Rabbi podcast. Maybe, maybe what it is is that Stuart needs to be woke. Mm. You're trying. You're, 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 I was, was going to pick the low fruit too, but uh, well, thank you for doing that. Uh, okay, so today, today, enough of this madness. Um, we, we have an awesome guest today. I was reading the USA Today, I think uh, late November, um, and I uh, saw an article um, that was uh, titled, uh, where'd it go? Where'd it go? Don't, don't help me. Don't help me, Wilfred. Well, on the cover, I just say, I said, I saw identity politics tear the Occupy movement apart. Economic leftists must ditch wokeness. So economic leftists must ditch wokeness. Uh, and, and other articles, too, um, that uh, I really enjoyed about how, uh, why woke history is not the answer. Uh, so uh, it catches your eye, of course. And then I think I'll admit, just as a white guy, that when I saw the writer um, is African-American, uh, so it even catches more of your eye, too. So that's Wilfred Riley. Dr. Wilfred Riley is an American political scientist, um, also associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University. He owns his Ph.D. in political science from uh, Southern Illinois University, which is great. I'm from Illinois, so props to you. And a law degree from U of I, and I am a Shambana uh, 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 graduate as well. Um, so we just know he's really, really good people. Um, but anyhow, uh, we, 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 we hit him up on Twitter. We said, come join us. And he actually responded, and which is awesome. And thank you. Your platform is much bigger than ours. And we just really appreciate you even saying, you know what? This sounds like an interesting thing, and I'm going to go do it and uh, be in this conversation. So, Dr. Will, thank you for being here, my friend, and to talk to us and school us on the ins and outs of wokeness. Yeah, glad to be here, guys. Um, so when you write an article that challenges the woke culture, and actually starts to pick apart in some of your articles where you start to pick apart some of just the, the basic facts that you're seeing are like, well, that, that's actually not a fact, that's untrue. Uh, do you get pushback from that, from either your students or from other people who see you on these national publications? Are they saying, who are you? Or well, what's that like? Or do you have a lot of people say, well, thank you very much. We, I have, I've been wanting to look for, for uh, some criticism on this. Well, I mean, I've gotten both responses. One thing that I will say is actually on my campus, I mean, I get a pretty good reaction. I mean, Kentucky State University is top 200 school. It's also a historically black college, however. And I think obviously black people as a group tend to vote primarily for the Democratic Party, but tend to be a pretty culturally conservative bunch if you're looking at you know, military service rates, varsity athletic participation, certainly religion. I mean, the black church, as you guys know, is, I mean, a, a pillar of that community. And also in the black community, it's pretty widely accepted that there's a difference of black political thought. I mean, you know, in a typical election, half the black community doesn't vote, 10 to 20% of those that do vote Republicans. There's not one black perspective, as you guys know. I find extreme radical wokeness to often be a product, and we'll get into what wokeness means and whether these terms make any up, sense baby. at all. But extreme radical wokeness, I find, is often a product of white guilt. Uh, when you look <laughs> at these colleges where people are fighting the police in the street, purple hair and so on, that's very often gonna be the Claremont colleges Berkeley. I mean, Father, you're, you're from that region. So we at Kentucky State, we don't really have um, a great amount of white guilt. I mean, our entire campus leadership would be rich black guys. So I mean, I think that I found much more engagement on the campus, uh, people discussing things, then I found sort of anger and hostility. I mean, now in social media, you know, Twitter is kind of a cesspool. Like when I log on, I get all kind of compliments. Um, 
You know, I also get things like dating offers in the inbox. I'm still a couple of years under 40. You know, I get, you know, invitations to come talk with priests and rabbis, you know, all, all kind of stuff. And I also get, you know, loony threats and so on. But the, the social media reality, not to minimize cyberbullying, but I mean, you can turn off the computer. In day-to-day life, I find people are, people are pretty receptive and people definitely want to hear whether that's a face-based challenge, an African-American challenge, whatever, to what's often this very dominant sort of center-left mainstream perspective that you see in the media. And that was the appeal of, as a political scientist, both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, by the way, over the last couple of elections, they offered an alternative to what you generally hear. And uh, I hope to as well, although on a completely different front, I'm not a very political guy, despite the degree. <laughs> all right. So so tell me, what uh, for all of us who Rabbi Durbin joked the other day, so when his daughter came up to him and asked him, like, are you woke? He was like, uh, I, I got a good night's rest. I'm, I'm good to go. So for, for all of us who now are dads and are removed from pop culture, and um, what, can you can you give us a little explanation of what does it really mean to be, quote unquote, woke? Well, there, there are two levels to that. I mean, on one level, being woke just means being kind of witty liberal on the internet. I mean, so this is a lot of this came out of cyber culture, you know, where people call each other woke and based, SJWs, all these other terms. And I mean, to some extent, this is just left and right arguing on 4chan. I mean, if I was writing an academic paper, I wouldn't say something like stay woke, bro, is the intro. But uh, there, there is a real meaning there, though. If you get into actual postmodern theory, uh, Frankfurt School theory, where the idea of being woke almost in that sense or of awakening is used. What being woke means at root is that you're aware that society is set up around these kind of structural injustices. Um, the, the old commies, the Marxists thought the big one was class, which is true, by the way. I agree with them on some points, although emphatically not the solution. But um, they, they thought that society was set up to protect class privilege that kind of the social contract was something we entered into after certain people got enough property to become wealthy in order that they might protect it. Um, modern critical theory tends to take that idea, which at least has some validity, and argue that society is set up to instead oppress Black people or gay people or whatnot. But the core idea of being truly woke is looking at any system and recognizing that what kind of looks fair, what looks facially valid, is in fact set up to brutalize some group of people. And a big aspect of this is the idea that any discrepancy equals discrimination. So if, for example, white people do better on the SAT than black people, the only possible explanation for that is that there is some kind of bias in the test. It's often called implicit bias, hidden racism. It's so subtle you can't even see it. It just looks like a math test. But in reality, there's some aspect of prejudice. Otherwise, people wouldn't be struggling. And I think a lot of people in the Black community or in recent immigrant communities will look at that and say, well, does everyone study as much for the test? I mean, let's be real about this. The people that get the, first of all, all the kids are struggling a little bit on these metrics. But the people that get the best scores seem to be Asian and Nigerian. Um, among whites, it's Jewish Americans. It doesn't seem to be sort of, you know, blonde children of the gentry. How do you explain that? So I don't, I don't find much merit to wokeness, but it's, a cool, it's an idea that's appealing if you're a high school or college age person. Like, I see the evil that made my dad rich. I see that these laws telling me I can't have sex in public and do drugs, you know, are the product of oppression. It, it's a, that rebel philosophy has appealed to people since, you know, Goethe back in the day, and it, it's still appealing today. Do you think that the, oh, go ahead, Rabbi. 
but, but so, so how does that term, if, if, if we're saying to be woke means to have a sincere awareness and, and, and a knowledge that there are injustices and there are discrepancies within our own society, what then becomes that, that, that measurement of action, of actually taking that knowledge and actually empowering myself or others to be able to use that in a impactful way to make change? That's, a, that's actually a really good question because I mean, I think, oh, <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I think that at a baseline level, I mean, if we're talking about a black guy, a Jewish guy and a Catholic guy, like everyone opposes extreme racism or religious discrimination. There's not a big lobby for slavery. And this is one of the things that makes this conversation so bizarre. The idea that if you oppose certain far left policy prescriptions, like we've recently seen the defund the police debate in major cities that my buddies live in, Seattle, Portland, even here in Louisville, uh, if you oppose nonsensical ideas, you're a racist. And in most cases, that's not true. The question of what do you do if you think there is bigotry is an excellent classic question. I would say two things. One, um, look and see whether the discrepancy you're looking at has to do with some kind of prejudice at all. Uh, very often it doesn't. And this is one of the reasons I became interested in this as a social scientist. You constantly see these arguments about, for example, the race and gender quote unquote wage gaps, like black and white men or men and women make different amounts. And when I started looking at that, I have a background in business and did pretty well in business. And it would seem to me that if you could hire someone for 63 cents on the dollar, uh, virtually everybody would do that. You would have edgy businesses deciding that they could get along with, say, an entirely female workforce or an entirely African-American workforce if these were the same people just being paid dramatically less. So I started looking at that. And what, what you find is that, for example, black and white men make different amounts of money because they're at different points in life. Uh, the most common age for a black guy is 27. Uh, the most common age for a white guy is 58. Black people are more likely to live in the South where wages are a lot lower. Um, there's an effect of test scores. We are still doing a bit worse. So if you adjust for all that, the same black guy and the same white guy make within two or three cents of one another. You can attribute that gap to prejudice and I probably would. But the first thing you'd have to do, uh, similarly, the argument that women make dramatically less money than men, when you look at the 63 and 68 cent figures you often get from feminist groups and so on, that includes, for example, women who aren't working, like housewives and home managers. So, I mean, the first step that I would take when you see something that might be prejudiced is just looking at it and seeing, well, is it? Um, if men are 10 times as likely to be arrested as women, does that mean that the police are sexist or does it mean that guys commit almost all the crime, which is what turns out to be the case? I mean, 91% of criminals or something like that are men. The only crime where women were overrepresented was prostitution. Uh, DUIs, close. But I mean, so the first step is see if there's prejudice at all. And the second step is what can we actually do to fix or to repair that? Um, I mean, so for example, when it comes to police violence, again, nobody supports crooked cops. What I would favor doing is a few pretty specific things like taking qualified immunity out of police union contracts. So you're not represented by an entire union and then an entire city. If you kill a guy, you have to go into court, assuming that that is ruled by a panel early on as an unjustified killing or something. You'd have a whole system. We don't want to leave the cops out there. But I mean, simply doing that or enhancing the punishments in the department for unnecessary violence would stop police from brutalizing people to the limited extent they do. You don't need to get rid of all the cops. 
So step one, check to see if what you're seeing is an example of prejudice at all. And if it is, and it sometimes is, I mean, take direct action to stop that. The woke idea, kind of last sentence here, but the woke idea it never really is that. It's always the solution is sort of broad-based communism because that's the end game goal. When you hear people who identify as woke, um, AOC in Congress comes to mind, talking about the solutions to virtually anything, whether that's COVID-19, um, whether that's upcoming climate change, real problems, it's always the same thing. Like we, we need to forgive student loan debt, expand the size of the government. And you might be forgiven for asking, and what the hell does any of that have to do with the fact that the planet's going to get slightly warmer? Couldn't we just start building seawalls and solve the entire problem? The answer is yes, by the way, according to the UN. But if you start saying stuff like that, you'll often, if you're talking with people that care about this kind of thing, get incredibly angry, fevered pushback. Like you're a defender of the system and the problem is the system. I don't think it is. I think the system works pretty well, but there's some minor flaws in it. We ought to fix them. I mean, you, you mentioned that the answer was broad-based communism. Where would you uh, label that as broad-based communism? So I know that term gets thrown out a lot and especially even socialism, but it, it, it seems to be the, these terms get thrown around so loosely now where really they're really, I mean, socialism is a pretty dramatic step where it, 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 like even a Bernie Sanders or I think an AOC are not projecting a socialistic, I mean, they're socialistic ideas, but the idea of a government taking over like foreign motors or taking over the press or something like that has never been offered. So explain, parse that out a little bit more about the response of a woke culture it goes into more broad-based communism. First of all, I was kind of teasing. I mean, I don't think that, you know, AOC wants to nationalize you know, all small businesses or something like that. But I do think that you notice very much that if you're talking to people that identify passionately with this movement and just doing serious research, I've talked to people that identify with the Black Lives Matter movement, a black block, which is often mislabeled as Antifa, but I mean, the black clad urban fighters you see on any college campus. Um, I myself was part of the Occupy movement. I say this in the USA Today piece, and it was entertaining. It was a lot of fun. I mean, you could hang around Grant Park and drink at noon and talk about the rich man. You know, but I mean, if you talk to people that identify with these movements, there is a similar set of solutions proposed to virtually everything. Um, and you'll hear words like community control thrown around, um, expanded size of the state, we need to invest in our children. I mean, just so on down the line, there's a set group of policy packages. So for example, I mean, when discussing climate change, I mean, there's a set of solutions that could begin with move 10 miles inland. I mean, there are many ways to respond to that. Start riding bicycles more, you know, and if you actually read through the Green New Deal, that's not necessarily what's involved. I mean, the, the original proposal was essentially that an agency at the governmental level, that this is the state, would sort of take charge of moving the USA away from fossil fuels and so on, but we weren't gonna use nuclear power either, it'd be solar and wind and so on. And I think page nine, they kill half of the American dairy herd, we have too many cows. So it's these very sweeping policy proposals that often seem very, very similar. Um, the response to COVID-19 would be creating a government agency and spending a lot of money. The response to climate change would be creating a government agency and spending a lot of money. I tend to be a fan of what the OG economist Tom Sowell called incremental positive change, where if you have a problem with cops kicking people's asses, you fire those cops. You don't say we need an agency focused on institutional anti-racism. Joe Biden's thinking about this, apparently, that is going to take on that as part of its brief, along with a bunch of other things. 
you don't need to defund the police. You just need to fire and prosecute those cops that are hurting people. So I, I tend to be more a fan of what's the problem within the system than how can we dramatically, dramatically change that and move toward, you know, utopia. Utopia means no place. It doesn't exist. That's right. That's right. So wokeness, what I'm hearing from you is the, the woke culture or those who carry the flag for wokeness. A lot of times it is, uh, they're just broad ideas and you don't see a lot of action maybe, or really uh, uh, a clear path. Um, do you, do you see a lot of talk and not a lot of action uh, with it? Do you, or or let, let me back up here. What what is the what is the 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 negative uh, aspect of people who uh, who are lifting up like I want to be woke? So when you talk about uh, on campuses like uh, you know at Berkeley or whatever, it's it's uh, I like how you said this. Yeah, I forget what you said. It was like a lot of uh, liberal rich white kids who feel bad about uh, racism or something. There was, a, there was a way you put it. So they're, they're working through the white guilt. Um, do you find, because we've had guests who say that sometimes the, the, the people who struggle the most with trying to fight racism, deal with it, are white liberals because they do a lot of talking, but at the end of the day, they don't want another backyard. So right, I, I see that we have different schools that are funding differently. The black school doesn't get as much money as the white school, but we might try to help that from a distance, but don't put those black kids in my school. Uh, and, and so, uh, but I don't know if you've experienced that, just like the woke culture is more performative. Well, I, th I think there are two negative elements. So one, yeah, if you've, and I suspect both of you guys have pretty recently, but if you've been in sort of young urban social life, yeah, you see a great deal of performative wokeness. I mean, you see people doing things like saying Latinx for their Hispanic buddies there was recently a study from, I think, Rasmussen that found that 97% of Latinos think this is a silly term. Like the whole point of the Spanish language is that words end in A or O, and that describes whether you see them as masculine or feminine or the whole context of the phrase. So you see a lot of, a lot of silly things like that. I think the greater threat of woke models, though, is that they really are based on this idea. I'm uh, going back to Antonin Gramsci, you know, Foucault, the people that actually wrote a lot of this stuff of we need to change this entire system. And I think if we actually if we actually abolish the police, that would be a disaster. I mean, thousands of people would die. I don't think that that is a serious proposal right now, but people that believe it in power would be pretty dangerous for society. So there's performativity. And then as with actual racism, they're the bad, dumb ideas that underlie that. Those are real ideas. All right. So uh, we, we got at this first half of the show. We've un understood what actually is wokeness, uh, some of the holes in wokeness and the issues with it. Uh, now we're going to see well, what's the next step here now. But we all want to fight the good fight and, and we all want a better place for us to thrive. And as Judeo-Christians, I can just say for Rabbi and myself, uh, we, 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 we are called to this because uh, as children of God, uh, that, that God came for, for, for all and not to discriminate, leave any behind. Um, so we're going to get back in more to, to, to the hope of this when we come back in the second half. Uh, if you've missed any of this, please uh, log on to the podcast. You can go to a priest and a rabbi dot uh, com to get all of the uh, past episodes and also beginning this episode. We're going to be right back with Dr. Wilfred Riley. Uh, political scientist and associate professor at Kentucky State University. We'll be right back.
You're listening to a priest and a rabbi podcast. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe and please leave a rating and a review, five-star rating and a positive review if you can. We certainly appreciate it. That is the best way to make sure that others out there just like you can find this podcast. If you want to get in contact with Father Christian and Rabbi Durbin, you can do so by emailing a priest and a rabbi at gmail.com. And the absolute best way to get a hold of the fellas is to call into the radio show. This podcast airs live on the radio every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. on WSTU 1450. And you can listen live online at WSTU1450.com. And if you want to join the show, you can call in to 772-220-9788. That's 772-220-WSTU. Hey, everyone. This is Father Christian here on A Priest and a Rabbi. So happy for you to be here on this podcast with us. And and I want to uh, let you know that I have uh, started a uh, YouTube channel called Your Favorite Christian. And you can check it out on YouTube. And uh, every Monday, I drop a new episode. And it's always through the lens of faith, but taking on different topics such as dating, relationships, marriage, pop culture. Uh, I've done one recently where I went out to the art show and talked about how do we find our relationship with God through all the what all the latest artists are doing. Um, last week was what do women really want um, in a man uh, and interviewing different people to be a part of that. So uh, please check that out on YouTube. Subscribe, like, share, uh, put on the notifications so you get that every Monday. Um, I also want to let you know of uh, we this podcast wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a generous donor from St. Mary's Episcopal Church who wishes to remain anonymous. All he asked, though, was that um, the information gets out that St. Mary's Episcopal Church here in Stewart has a healing center. And so you can call if you're looking for a counselor, someone to be there for you during a challenging time. And you can call the church at 772-287-3244. We also have a group of Stephen ministers who have been trained over 50 hours of training to be with you and walk with you during a time of crisis. They are not counselors. They are trained just to be more of the presence um, of, of Christ or and, and walk with you during a time of crisis, whether it's a, a good crisis of having, oh my gosh, my daughter's about to get married, or if there's something a little bit heavier. So give us a call, 772-287-3244, and I thank that anonymous donor who uh, makes this all possible. All right, God bless you, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. All right, all right. Welcome back to the second half of the show for a priest and a rabbi. If you're tuning in, whether you're at work, at home, you might be at home because I think there's a pandemic going on, so some of you might be at home. Um, next to me is the best looking rabbi you've seen this side of the Jordan River. And we have, I have to say, before we get to the second part of the show, where we have a fantastic guest, Dr. Wilford Riley, aka Will the Beast. You'll find him on Twitter, uh, a political scientist and professor. Uh, we also have not had our Yiddish word of the day. And before we begin the second part of the show, um, we need that. So Rabbi Durbin, um, is there any kind of Hanukkah-inspired Yiddish word you can have us um, latch on to? Sure. Uh, you know, as, I, um, as, as we talked a little bit earlier on uh, the Get Up and Go show, uh, is, is, look, the Yiddish word of the day, mish, mishpacha which we would put in a Hebrew context, mishpacha, family, right? As we come together 
and we celebrate our respective holidays, whether it be Christmas in 14 days, Hanukkah for the next eight, um, you know, that we are part of one human family, which is concerned for the needs of all people and how we can try and bring that about. Stop the, the other Yiddish word, stop the mishugas, the, the craziness, the insanity. And let's, uh, let's focus in on uh, how we can repair and make our world a more harmonious place. All right, well, let's cut the Michigas, get right back to it. Um, and th- next to uh, us, if you're just tuning in, is Dr. Wilfred Riley, who is helping us parse out uh, the, the, the dangers or let's say the issues of performative wokeness. And if uh, we're, we're all striving uh, to, to, to build a more just and fair society and how the wokeness culture uh, can at times be a detriment uh, to that. Um, so there is a big project that came out from the New York Times, the 1619 Project, and uh, Dr. Riley, you've, you've mentioned this uh, in one of your articles you wrote recently. Uh, you gave criticism of, of that, um, and many people have, have, have turned to that, that project from the New York Times, talking about the basis for America, uh, and really the foundation, everything came from slavery. So I'm assuming, and I, I'll admit, I have not gone through the project a lot, but that the that everything we have, we have to attribute to that because it's built upon the backs of, of, of human beings treated as chattel. Um, I don't know if I, that's a good summary of it, but I know that you push back on that and explain why you push back on it. Maybe you think it's not helpful actually at all to um, empowering folks, especially people of color. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of the things, that, there's some good writing in the 1619 Project, but it also says a lot of things that just objectively aren't true. I mean, the classic example that's been criticized a lot by historians is the idea that the Revolutionary War was fought primarily to preserve unfreedom, that the main motivation, I think the phrase they use as primary motivation was uh, protecting slavery. We wanted to fight the Brits because they were fighting slavery. That's actually just nonsensical. I mean, there was an abolitionist movement on kind of the home island of Britain, but slavery wasn't abolished in the English colonies for 57 years after we launched the revolution. And problems like that just keep popping up. Um, I mean, when you talk about the idea of slavery making the USA wealthy, I mean, slavery made slave owners wealthy, but slavery was something that existed almost entirely in the South only until 1865. Um, If you look at the US economy, I actually broke this down for one of my essays, and I think it's grown 12,000%, 15,000%, something like that since then. And that's due to things that are also part of history that can't be forgotten. I mean, if you want to talk about oppression, you have the Chinese and the Irish as well. But you also have, I mean, these triumphs. You have the building of the railroads across the country, the Pony Express. You know, getting wealthy is a huge part of our history, how we did it, the Spanish-American War. So I think legal immigration from countries like Mexico and Japan, the Philippines, Nigeria. So just sort of ignoring all that and saying, well, everything was caused by a race war 200 years ago, so give me some money. I mean, I think that that's really not a positive, logical perspective. So, I mean, uh, I use this line in one of my essays, but every country to some extent tells a noble lie about how it began. We're one of the few that seems to be telling one that makes our history seem worse than it was instead of better. Of course, slavery was part of US history, but I mean, we also sent that integrated union army made up of, you know, Catholic Irishmen and free blacks, you know, Quakers down to the South, conquered the whole place and freed the slaves. So, so just sort of talking about slavery and then skipping over what happened to it and then talking about the modern era is not to me the best way to present history. This is an academic dispute, but it's also very real. 
If you look at the 1619 Project, what made it so effective is that they take almost random things in contemporary society, like the fact that we eat a lot of pork and sugar, and try to connect them to historical slavery. Well, what did the slaves grow? And the question comes up, I mean, is that different from the crops grown by free people anywhere else? Uh, one of the essays argues that uh, traffic congestion is the result of historical slavery and segregation. I assume the argument is there's a black part of town and you know, wealthy white part of town, a poor white part of town. It's hard to get around and that's why it's tough to drive in the South. The problem though is that it's harder to drive in the North. I was actually curious enough about this. So I looked at it empirically like traffic congestion in different cities because I'm a nerd. And it was the most congested cities were places like New York and Chicago. So there, there's an element of questioning, is, is that really true? Is it really slavery that caused capitalism here? Okay, well, why are all the Asian countries capitalistic? And you keep coming up against this sort of thing when you try to use racism as what I'd call a univariate explanation. Again, we all hate racism, but if your argument for you know SAT scores being low in black communities is racism, why are they also low in poor white communities and high in Asian and African you know, working class communities? Life is complicated. So do you think that this data, because everyone, everyone is, I would assume, is trying to fight the good fight. And, and, and so the folks who are saying, or making these statements and the 1619 Project is saying, I'm assuming the writers are doing this too, let's, let's unveil the truths so we can have healing in our country. I mean, I think I've heard from a faith-based perspective, this idea is that slavery is our original sin. It's the original sin of this country. So in order for us to move forward, there's still a lot of pain and hurt that's there. And we have to go through some redemptive process of repentance, of redemption, and we can finally go into the newness and healing of, uh, of, of, of a kind of a resurrected type uh, uh, existence. Um, but the, the folks will say, but we haven't done that yet. We just kind of ignored it and said that that hasn't been there. Uh, or we just say, you know what, that was in the past, get on and move forward. Uh, do, do you think the 69 project is successful at all? Or what do you think the goal is of the 1619 project? Is it just to expose and to make more awareness or what are they trying to do to move things forward? Well, I, th I think this ties back into the conversation before break, which is this whole idea of wokeness, whether that's performative or dead serious. Basically the woke idea, if we get back to it originally is that the system itself is corrupt and has to fail or be dramatically changed. So the system, the secret of the system, if, if you are truly woke, is that it's set up to oppress, either along class lines, race lines, whatever. And so what you need to do is reveal that truth and then dramatically change the system based on that revealed truth. So I, I think that's the real thrust of 1619. It's not, we need to talk about slavery or we need to discuss our ancestors fighting one another. Everyone's on board. Slavery, the Indian War, so on are a huge part of any history textbook, um, as, as they should be. The Holocaust, I mean, the humans are capable of doing very bad things to one another. This is no secret to either of you gentlemen. But I mean, the 1619 idea isn't, let's talk about this. It's this thing that exists in society today came from historical evil. So it needs to be dramatically changed or you are participating in evil. Uh, one of the essays, for example, talks about the idea that we don't have a single payer socialized healthcare system because of slavery and resulting racism. And again, there's fairly little evidence of this. I mean, federal countries, which is what we are, are in general less likely to have one shared healthcare system for the whole giant diverse place. Um, 
but so that's the argument. All this comes out of historical slavery, which is our original sin. It needs to be changed. And there are actually a couple of kind of serious points about even that comment. Um, I don't want to get into really amateur theology, but I would question whether slavery is an original sin for the USA in the standard sense of, you know, a unique thing we did that made us fall from innocence, you know, Adam and Eve splitting the fruit, so on. Slavery was a human universal forever. I mean, slavery dates back to the first successful generals no longer just killing and eating their battle captives, if we want to be real about it. I mean, you, you actually see slave models starting to develop in sort of Aztec and Inca society when we got here. Like slavery is just something humans do at a certain oh, yeah. level. You win a lot of wars. Yeah, and I, I think I think what the the idea of its original sin is just that this country was uh, founded on it. So that's where we that's where we that's where you have uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of free labor that's been given. And without that, uh, the, the basis of our economy started from that. And without that, you irrevocably change how this country starts. I think that there actually was a, so again, no one, slavery was terrible. I mean, I'm, many of my ancestors were slaves. Now, ironically, some of them were also slave owners, successful black or native warriors that had a bunch of slaves, free blacks, the great native tribes like the Cherokee, Jewish Americans. I mean, minority groups owned a substantial number of slaves. This, this isn't really disputed by anyone. Um, black Americans could own Irish bond servants. They just weren't slaves, technically. I mean, they, they were free in 23 years. People only lived to be 27. It was a tough time. Um, but I mean, so again, no, nobody disputes this, but I, I think there's a sort of natural experiment in place where we can look at whether slavery was the, the primary thing that built the United States. And that simply is, was the South richer than the North? to some extent. I mean, we had two regions of the country, one of which had slaves and one of which largely did not. There were some exceptions in Maryland. And what we actually find is that before the Civil War, the industrial North, which did not brutally oppress people, which didn't rely on this kind of feudal Russian-style plantation agriculture, was doing a lot better. Um, if you look at what economists say about the Civil War, this is actually the reason the North won. The South had something like 10% of the factories, you know, 12% of the skilled craftsmen. Uh, because slavery drove down wages in the region, there was a huge poor white class that lived in desperate poverty. Um, when the Union soldiers, black and white, conquered the South, they were horrified by what they were seeing, and not just on the slave plantations. So I think saying that adopting this traditional sort of medieval system that impoverished half the country is the reason the USA became powerful is false. If that were true, the South would have won the Civil War. The, the real legacy of slavery is that humans have the capability for evil. And in one part of the country, we took on this traditional evil system. You beat people in a war, you make them work for the rest of their life. And that was to the detriment of that region of the country. The South is still poorer today. Um, one final comment is when people say we have not attempted to handle the legacy of slavery or more broadly of conflict between sort of the great races here, I would say that's extremely debatable. I mean, the United States first fought the Civil War to free the slaves. I mean, 600,000 people died. But even in more modern times, as we recover from the backlash to Reconstruction and all that, I mean, we desegregated the entire country, at least illegally, in 1954. Racism became illegal in 1964. I mean, we've had 53 years of pro-minority affirmative action. Um, you know, that certainly benefited me on some occasions when I applied to law school and that sort of thing. I very specifically applied as a black guy rather than an Irish guy or even a native guy for, for this reason. So we can always do better. That's the basis of honest philosophy or honest faith. But are we doing terribly? Do we have slaves today or have we not responded to them with affirmative action, structured systems designed to move people up? I mean, 
I, I don't think that's a fair take, really. So, yeah, so I think, because, yeah, we could probably go back and forth and debate all those topics, but I think the main thing here is, is it, to, I think what you're saying, and tell me if I'm wrong here, that this dwelling around this evilness that was at the beginning of our country and living there and talking about exposing it, how is that helping us move forward right now? And I think what you're saying is if, if these, these facts that you know, you're saying are, are just not true, that we will have this negative outlook on our country and actually we've done very well and quite well. And are you, would you say that it's, if we, if we live there and just talk about the horrors of before and paint a picture of how bad it was and it was built upon this horrific uh, institution of slavery that it hurts or it doesn't empower uh, folks well today or doesn't give us the morale as Americans to think like everyone can make it, anyone can do well um, when actually things are going quite well. We've made huge strides. So I think what, what is the negative aspect of a 1619 Project narrative? Do you think that actually can hurt our country today of how we look at opportunity and how we look at uh, prosperity for all? Yes, of course. I mean, I, I think that the impact of the 1619 narrative and to some extent the goal of the 1619 narrative, because remember, these are very intelligent people that are not evil, that want sweeping changes. I just don't want the changes. But the impact of that narrative, which is intentional, is the idea that the USA is evil and it needs radical sweeping reform, or at least it was founded on evil, to be a little fairer. Um, and around this sort of narrative, I mean, I, I think you'd see some pretty strong correlations between people that believe in 1619 history or quote unquote Howard Zinn history and people that back radical change to police departments. I mean, people that back an anti-racist quote unquote or critical race theory curriculum in the schools. I mean, people who back, you know, the GND and major changes to how we do business in the USA. And I, in general, don't oppose those things. I think the USA has an ugly history like most countries, but I think that in general, we also were the first modern democracy. There's a lot to be proud of. I think right now calling us an evil country, unless you're talking specifically about some aspects of foreign war or something, would be nonsensical. I mean, we're one of the wealthiest, most tolerant states in the world. So I don't see a reason. And I, to some extent, you just say I'm on the other side of the political debate, although I, I think I'm right. But I don't see a reason to promote this narrative, have the effect that it obviously would on any decent people, and then go forward in this other direction when right now in the direction we're going on, we're the wealthiest, most powerful state in the world. It does, doesn't make any sense to me. That, that essentially is, you know, one paragraph response. All right. So, so tell me this. You're a part of a, of a different group that sort of is, I don't know if it was a response to 1619, but the 1776 group. Tell, tell us about that and how you find that, that uh, the group that you're a part of is helping empower uh, uh, folks who might have had a limited voice in the past. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a member of the 1776 project, and politics is kind of funny with the, you know, look at Congress and then like the squad and the Freedom Force and all this stuff, like these guys are superheroes. But yeah, I am a, I'm a member of one of these groups that's active around this topic, 1776 Unites. Uh, some of it pre-existed 1619, but obviously the, the title is somewhat related to the opponent group, so on. But the idea of 1776 Unites is what are the problems that actually exist in society and how can we change them without fantasy, without these ideas like we need to destroy and remake society? All that's not necessary. If black kids are doing worse on the test, give them books and let them study for the test. And I guess in a sentence, that would be the 1776 kind of thesis question. Like what, 
can we actually do to solve these issues? Um, I mean, kids are taking drugs and hooking up too young. What can, what can you do about that? Dads in the home is an obvious solution there. I mean, the question is, how do you implement that? I mean, that's, a, that's an incredibly difficult question. But I mean, there are test score gaps between African-Americans and for that matter, working class whites and kind of the middle class majority of the country. What do you do about that? You know, there, there is a problem with police violence in some cities. Let's not kid ourselves about this, but how do you get those bad officers off the force? And I think to me, as someone with kind of that background in business, went out to college, tenured professor, I have kind of a let's get it done attitude. Like, what's the actual problem? How do we fix it? We all know human beings are flawed. We all know people are imperfect. So we're not, this actually, you guys might've helped me hit on this. The difference is that I don't think that human beings are perfectible in this world, at least. I mean, so there's this idea on a lot of the radical left and also on this extreme kind of racialist alt-right, if we just do the right thing, if we don't marry and sleep with these people, if we don't adhere to this philosophy of government, we can be perfect. Bro, no, you can't. That's the reality. That's not going to happen. The reason we have religion is that we can conceive quite possibly accurately of perfect beings. What would we do if we want to follow them? But we are not going to be gods. We're not, we're not going to do that. You can't build utopian societies. So whereas we're 1619 would say, and I don't want to put words in their mouth, but they basically said this. Black Lives Matter certainly has said this. If we get rid of all police, we'd see a peaceful suburban existence in cities because people would no longer be forced into crime. People would no longer have criminal records that would prevent them from getting jobs. I think some people are just bad. If you got rid of police, what you'd see in cities is the crime rate quadrupling in a year and then people starting up vigilante posses. So it's a better idea to ask, well, how can we fix the cops than how can we get rid of the cops? Fantasy isn't a good basis for real society. So 1716, give, do you guys have a way of looking at things and saying this is, what is the way that you all approach it to help with empowerment, to help with solution-based stuff? So where's the hope that you see with uh, with some of the groups that you're a part of, and specifically with, uh, since we've, uh, dealing with racial injustices, uh, what is the way where you see that, okay, we see some lower test scores, um, we see some, uh, maybe some, uh, lack of opportunity in some places. Where, where do you see, what are some of the uh, voices of hope or action steps that are coming out of 1776? Well, I mean, they're very specific solutions to these problems. I mean, if you look at the lack of small business, one of the things also that I will say, a little bit of a sideline, many of these gaps that we see aren't racial gaps, they're class gaps. Uh, in America, we don't talk about social class because we don't have it. We don't have kings here. You know, this goes back to the beginning where every man's home is his castle. You can be anything. The, the simple reality is that if you adjust for social class, I mean, generally defined as crudely as the income of your father. Now you could use both parents. You eliminate about 90, 95 percent of the gaps that are attributed to race. That's just a fact. I live in Appalachia. So if you want to talk, it's actually a Kentucky. I would say I live 20 minutes from Appalachia. It's kind of a debate here, like where Chicago and New York end. But I mean, you know, if you go to, first of all, like four of the 10 poorest counties in the USA are in Kentucky and they're all white. Um, if you go to Harlan County, you're going to have the exact same problems in terms of food deserts, violence. I mean, that's where the Hatfields and McCoys live. There's a little less murder. There's a lot more suicide, fatal DUI, you know, so on that you're, you have in quote unquote the hood. Um, 
so I don't, I don't necessarily think a lot of these are just black problems, which again gets back to, if you want to talk about oppression, you have to look at urban Irishmen who are still suffering the effects of that in places like South Boston. You have to look at Hispanics. You have to take this Native American Indians. I mean, that's the majority of the most deprived areas. So you, you have to take a broad lens view here. But how do you, how do you solve these problems? I mean, Bob Woodson and others involved with 1776 have actually worked on setting up enterprise zones in the inner city. How do you get business there? You invite business there. And you promise business that you're going to have a certain number of young men from the area for a reasonable fee, protect those businesses, keep them safe from harm. You know, I mean, the, the reason people don't build in the hood isn't just racism, it's that your store might get burned down. So again, on the 1776 front, we try to talk honestly about all of this. You know, the reason Baltimore, for example, recently went through, they had a great enterprise zone package. Um, they did things like bring flagship CVS stores to the hood, so on. And then in 2015, and again in 2020, a lot of that stuff got set on fire. It's a bit awkward to talk about this as a black dude, but I mean, like the flagship CVS store was the store that people were dancing in front of during the Baltimore riots. Like it was entirely burnt to the ground. It's got to be a 20, $25 million business. So to bring businesses to the hood, you have to first invite them. And then, you know, what's the insurance package going to look like? Are you guys providing security? And yeah, 1776, I think, works a lot more in actually doing that than many of the opposing groups. Similarly, I mean, how do you boost test scores? Uh, the question is, how do you get people to study more, frankly? There's a social scientist, John Ogbu, who is an African gentleman, um, who was interested in why black kids in rich areas were underperforming, you know, not all whites, but like their buddies in the same town who were no more, no less deprived. We're talking about places like Shaker Heights, Naperville, Illinois. I mean, no one is, is a victim there. And what he found out was that we on average study less. Like there's more of a focus on popularity. Black kids are very often quite popular in high school. There's more of a focus on varsity athletics. So, I mean, one of the things we do with 1776 is kind of emphasize the books. We have a school curriculum. It's been downloaded several thousand times. Uh, we talk about the importance of academic work and we try to give examples from black history, like Robert Smalls, the, the guy that stole the Confederate battleship, sailed it to the USA. That if you're a young person, especially a young man or reasonably interesting as opposed to just wonkery, but th that's the goal. It's actually getting people to do this stuff. If your group, Appalachian whites or blacks or whatever, is doing a bit worse in school, how do you get them to study 10% more? As versus this idea, school is racist, burn it all down. Hmm. Do you find that there is, do you agree that there is systematic racism? I, I'm not sure. No. I mean, I agree there's a lot of racism and it can infest systems. Racism, like mistreatment of women, the abuse of drugs, it's one of those eternal human vices. I mean, when you read the ancient traveler's guides, I mean, we, we, then we went to the filthy city of Tarsus. You know, it's, it's, this is something that humans have always suffered from. Systemic racism in any real sense would mean that a system's guiding principles were based generally pretty openly, if you look at segregation, on racism. And you could honestly attribute gaps in that system to those principles. There, there's what you call a direct causal relationship. Today, no. I mean, racism is formally illegal. If you look at something like the criminal justice system, if you're running an honest model, you can test out the fact that the prejudice of judges is still responsible for 2% or whatever the length of sentences. We need to eliminate those judges, identify them. But to argue that the current legal system is wildly racist, I mean, I'm not sure what that means. 15% of the judges are black. So no, I don't think there is an oppressive system designed to get minorities. In fact, that again is, that's a good summary of what the boogeyman here is. There's some ghost in the machine. It's not an individual racist who's going to get fired next year. There's some ghost in the machine that's bringing down those test scores, that's locking up those young brothers. It doesn't have anything to do with all that crack they found on that guy. Uh, I don't think that that's true. Gotcha. I wish we could have some of our other guests who uh, <laughs> I think of Dr. 
uh, Zenobia Poitier, she's a assistant principal out here. Um, and so she's- Love um, to talk to her. Yeah, African-American and how her, her idea and understanding of how um, black students are treated within classes and how they are, uh, the teachers subconsciously can have a treatment towards the black students and treat them as less, uh, not as intelligent, not as smart, not call upon them. And so she has a lot of study and research upon that. It'd be interesting to hear you two uh, go back and forth on that one. I can actually give a quick comment on that. When you look at that, so first of all, again, racism bad, you know, if you actually find a teacher that, first of all, in the past 10 years, I haven't seen those conclusions. I don't think there is much evidence teachers just don't call on the Hispanic kids or whatever. I mean, black people are overrepresented in education. But I think that in general, when you look at a lot of this stuff, the first thing you have to do is adjust for actual performance. This is tough to talk about when you're talking about white suicides, which we do in Appalachia or black behavior. But I mean, when you look at African-American men are three times as likely to be suspended as kind of the average for high school. Well, how often do people get in fights? I mean, it's the same thing for Appalachian white men. It's the same thing for urban Italian men. And I mean, I think if you just, if you took a guy on a basketball court or a golf course and said, young black, quote unquote, redneck and Italian guys are very likely to get suspended from high school. What's the cause? I think that 90% of men off the record would say that's because those guys get into a fair number of brawls. Prejudice may play a role, but first you have to adjust for number of brawls. Same thing. I mean, when you talk about kids called out in the classroom, 90% of primary school call-outs are because someone raises their hand. So, I mean, it's, you have to look at that. You can't ignore who raises their hand and then say, all these teachers must be racist. The next comeback is, what about the black teacher? All right. So uh, a lot of a lot of uh, interesting. You might have uh, comments or questions about this. Please leave a comment. Uh, if you are tuning online, you can always hear the full, full uh, episode over um, on the podcast. Uh, Dr. Riley, people want to learn more about you. Where can they find you? I'm pretty visible online. I'm almost always willing to have conversations, debates. I'm Wilfred Riley on Facebook, Twitter. I mean, there's 100,000 followers across social media. Uh, also, buy my books. I wrote Hate Crime, Hopes, Taboo, and The $50 Million Question, which is purely academic. All right. God bless you all. We'll see you next time, next Friday, here on A Priest and a Rabbi.